I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Welcome to Feminist Buzzkills, the show that dubs this last year a 52-week abortion. I'm Liz Winstead, and I'm joined by my co-host, Moji Olivodale. Hello. Today, we're looking back on the year after the Supreme Court decided abortion. We don't need no stinking abortion. Wow. That was some really a mashup of blazing saddles and abortion. You never knew you needed. Good job, Moji. Thank you. I'm proud of you. But it's true. We are going to break down the year in oppression with abortion provider Amy Hegstrom Miller, founder and CEO of Whole Women's Health. She candidly shares the emotional toll that providing care, fearing jail time, closing clinics and filing lawsuits has taken on her patients and staff. These laws have hit the South the hardest. And Allison Kaufman from Amplified Georgia Collaborative is here to talk with us about the status of care in Georgia and the South and how their work coalition building is the path to reclaiming our rights. Plus, comedian and dope queen Phoebe Robinson gives us tips on practicing radical self-care during this time and how she uses her comedy platform to destigmatize reproductive care. So let's get to it. Let's first paint a quick picture of where we are since the Dobbs decision. 24 states have voted to ban abortion or have successfully banned it. To break that down, 14 states currently have a total ban or near total ban. Four states have strict gestational bans. And six states are just waiting for courts to weigh in on their shit law. Now, 29 million women of reproductive age live in those states. Dozens of clinics have closed. Four states have been restricting access to medication abortion, including by prohibiting the mailing of medications into their jurisdictions. And three, count of three states have enacted bounty hunting laws to hunt down people who are helping people access abortion. Holy shit. Holy shit. I know. The most notable and least shocking is states with the highest proportions of Black, Native, and Hispanic women are the states with the most bans. You know, it's almost like centuries of disenfranchisement makes it easier to steamroll unpopular policies over people. Funny how that works. Funny how that works. The thing we noticed play out leading up to and after Dobbs were two major types of motivators for the politicians and supporters of these bans. Both are deeply rooted in misogyny and racism, but each hoping for different outcomes. That's right. So before we laid out all the laws in the landscape, we wanted to lay out the two kinds of people politicians and otherwise, who really were motivated to do this. The first is the punisher. Now, the punisher is the poster child of the cruelty is the point behavior. This asshole is a true believer in all things Jesus, who thinks women should be punished to the fullest extent of God's law or just die in childbirth because the Bible. With the punisher, the cruelty is not only the point, it's the driving force 
in passing all of these shitty anti-abortion laws. And one of their motivations is deeply rooted in fanatical disregard of secular anything. Uh, <laughs> they're there for the eternal salvation. They kind of feel like God's made the rules and we're just enforcing them. And to that end, they will hook up with any white supremacist if they're on board with punishing women and queer people. Right. And so these people are the ones that just you cannot rationalize with. They don't care. And their reaction from like the fallout of all these bans was none, because all they want to do is if, if you just disobey God's law, you're just going to hell. So it doesn't matter if you die in childbirth. If you're fucking before you're married, too bad. Or like that's literally their their motivation, right? They really are. And even if you aren't fucking before you're married, they glorify people who die in childbirth, mothers who decide like, I have four kids, but I'm not dubbing as abortion, even though I'm dying. When you think of the Punisher, think of the normalization of people like the Duggars, right? These weird churches that used to be fringy, but they were really never fringy because they had jillions of people that belonged to them. And they are now taking space and a lot of space in school boards city councils and state legislatures. And we have to be careful for the punishers because nothing, nothing, nothing will stop them from being as oppressive as possible. The punisher does not care if you die because nope. if you die, you sinned. And it was God's plan. Unlike the careerist who is driven by money and power and doesn't want you dead because he still needs you to make him a sandwich. Mm -hmm. And the careerist, that's the second one. And they move purely on political expediency. They essentially looked at where the money was coming from, what they believed their base wanted, and they voted for whatever model legislation was placed on their desk by a donor. And they got caught off guard when things went the way they went. They would very easily pay for a mistress's abortion, will break any of their professed moral codes. And then if they're busted, they'll be forgiven because they publicly asked God for forgiveness. It's kind of that simple. Fundamentally, they were just too callous or too stupid to consider what would happen if abortion was actually banned. Exactly. Careerists also underestimated the power of the punishers, right? They wrote them off as fringe and by ignoring them, gave them all this power and control for the narrative. I mean, these careerists were garbage. They often didn't read, like you said, they didn't read the laws. They just signed it. They somehow thought that Roe wouldn't be overturned. So they would constantly, they fed off this abortion narrative. They're the ones who basically, when the dog caught the car with these abortion bans, they were like, oh, fuck, am I still going to get money from the Chamber of Commerce and stuff like that? So then they started backpedaling on all of these laws, but not in a good way, in a sideways fucked up way. Like, hey, let's go in and at least create exceptions for the life of the mother so that people don't die on the table. But also, like, I don't think that they are having real repercussions yet, right? A lot of these laws that are deeply unpopular are just there because the these politicians are in safe gerrymandered district. And so they just don't see the fallout. Oh, they won't experience the fallout, I think. But it doesn't matter because of their unholy alliance with the punishers. They all just pass these shitty ass laws. And now we're living with the horrible fallout of what's going on in these states. We see people suffering and dying, right? We see these deeply unpopular positions, even in hard red states. It turns out most people want people to be able to access abortion, or at the very least, they don't want people suffering through miscarriages and unable to have the services that they need. Right. And this attempt to fake fix shit 
you know, like giving tax credits for fetuses and all that stuff. It's very transparent. And it's because abortion bans are deeply unpopular. And now they can't backtrack and the punishers don't give a fuck. They're like, abortion's bad. This is what should happen. It's God's will. Hopefully the, you know, earth will open up and fire will come out. <laughs> and let's look what's happening with states where there are total bans. Maternal hospitals are shuddering. An Idaho hospital closed their labor and delivery ward, not even an abortion clinic, labor and delivery ward because of the abortion ban. And therefore pregnant residents have to drive 46 miles for care. And fleeing the Sophie's choice of criminal penalties or watching patients suffer, doctors are moving from hostile states and taking their knowledge and expertise with them. But do you blame them? No, not when felony is a penalty and like ridiculous fees. Yeah, 25 years to life in prison, $250,000 fines, loss of license. Doctors are scared to practice and it's bad. It is. And even before Dobbs, half of U.S. counties had no OBGYN only getting worse. And also this is affecting pregnancy care for everyone like that Idaho hospital that closed. That's not for abortion care per se, although generally they help with miscarriage management, genetic testing, but yet everyone is being hurt by this. Right. And we've seen lawsuits out of Texas where people are suing because they can't get the care. People have been left to die. You've seen the stories over and over again. And in Tennessee, doctors are fleeing, but it's not just physicians who are currently practicing. No. The situation around med schools is also really stark because of this ban. Med schools in these red states aren't offering abortion training. That's not even new. No, it isn't. Not at all. Actually, before Dobbs, many med students already had to travel for comprehensive abortion training. But after Dobbs, how are you going to learn abortion in a state that doesn't allow abortion. Because of these bans, med schools are closing. OBGYN programs in schools are closing. It turns out that a recent study by Association of American Medical Colleges shows that interest in the specialty, the OBGYN specialty, took a notable dip with applications dropping 5% nationwide. And that number is doubled in states where abortion is banned. And 45% of OBGYN programs in the U.S now operate under abortion bans and not all of those students can travel to learn what they need to learn. And the scariest statistic of all is 76% of med students say they wouldn't apply to work or train in a state with abortion restrictions. So as we said, this is a crisis. Yeah. And Moji, the icing on the shit cake of creating this like abortion fleeing thing are these wackadoodle anti-abortion doctors and a dentist who filed this crackpot lawsuit in Texas to try to ban the abortion pill from being disseminated to these very kinds of communities that need it so profoundly. Well, obviously, if you have commandeered the federal judiciary, then you can find crackpot judges to do whatever you want. And that's exactly what happened in this case. It, it's exactly a good example, too, of the careerists who are the bullshit people who are like, if Rose overturned, it will just go back to the states and then there'll be states laws. Well, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. Roe got overturned. And the first thing that happened is these crackpot people tried to get a federal ban on the abortion pill because they know if the abortion pill is out there in the world, it will be the saving grace for these very states that have decimated access to abortion 
abortion provision, no more doctors and med students from coming. And so now we're just faced with so much hellish reality. And as we do this podcast, we sit here and wait for that ruling to come down, which whatever they decide, it will definitely go to the Supreme Court. And then that will be the next fight that we move on to in year two without Roe. Liz, I'm praying that we are not having a one-year anniversary of the time they ended the abortion pill episode next year. I do too, because I don't want to come back and talk to our next guest, who is actually one of the plaintiffs suing the FDA to protect the abortion pill to find out that it has all been for naught. So let's think happy thoughts and bring on this champion of all things to talk a little bit about what the year has been like for abortion providers and the scorched earth they've been working under. We're joined by the founder and CEO of Whole Women's Health Alliance, Amy Hagstrom-Miller, who has for the past year been scrambling to close clinics while opening in safe states and has been beating back bad guys with the tenacity of a honey badger. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hi, Liz. Hi, Moji. Hey. You know, Amy, as we were deciding that we were going to sort of look back on this year of Dobbs, you were our first person that we wanted to talk to because you have been in this game for a long time and you have uh, been providing care in a whole host of states. And so before we sort of start diving into the meat of how the landscape has shifted, let folks know a little bit about the history of Whole Women's Health and Whole Women's Health Alliance, where you've had clinics, where you are currently offering abortion care and sort of how you've been functioning overall. How long do you have? <laughs> we got all day, baby. <laughs> you know, I've been in the field of abortion care provision since 1989. Um, I started um, first job out of college, you know, learned every job in the clinic. And that's sort of like the beginning of my story. Um, and by far and away, this has been the hardest year I've ever experienced. And that's saying something because I've taken more than one case to the Supreme Court. I've had clinics in Texas and Indiana and other places, but this year has been incredibly difficult, really about a year and a half, starting with SBA in Texas and then moving through the Dobbs hearing, the leak, the Dobbs decision. And no matter how much planning an abortion provider can do, there's no way to prepare for this kind of regulatory interference. You know, we hear about it a lot in the news, like from a legal framework, and from an advocacy framework, but I'm also an employer of people who have families and who are primarily, uh, our workforce is primarily people of color who are working parents. And I've had to lay off a tremendous amount of people as a direct result of having these abortion bans roll out in places like Texas. And these are people who've dedicated their lives to serving their communities. They're from their community. Um, they've dedicated their lives to fabulous abortion care. And had to lose their jobs for no reason other than these nonsense politics. And so I think some of the things that are kind of invisible to the public, um, what it means when you have to close a clinic, it's not like a media moment that just happens for a minute, right? Um, I finally signed the paperwork to sell my Fort Worth clinic building last Friday, and I put it on the market 11 months ago, which means I was paying a mortgage without any income where I had to have somebody come and check on the building. And we had people move into the property. We had fires there. We had the alarm set off. We had all of these things for us are ongoing, even though we had to stop providing abortions at 10 a.m. on June 24th. There hasn't been support for financially from the field for, you know, helping people with severance, helping people transition to new work. 
that part has been heartbreaking for me that um, a lot of people just don't know how to respond to a huge percentage of our workforce in abortion care losing their work. Oftentimes people, you know, want to move on to the next thing and like, let's open clinics over here. Let's figure out how to solve all these problems with abortion pills. Um, of course, I'm working on those things as well, but it really shows a lot about a field, how you help people when they are at their worst, right? When they lose their jobs and when clinics have to close. And so the wind down for us is like moving equipment, storing patient charts, negotiating our ways out of leases, you know, trying to sell buildings. We closed four clinics in Texas all at the same time. And now we're looking to have to close a clinic in Indiana. And our organization was doing that at the exact same time as we were keeping clinics in Haven States open. You know, we've had an amazing run. I started Whole Woman's Health 20 years ago this year. What an anniversary year, right? Wow. And so, you know, I'm delighted on some levels that we've been able to have a clinic this whole time in Minnesota. And we have two clinics in Virginia. We have a clinic in Maryland. Thank goodness for those places. And thank thank goodness that the voters there don't get redistricted out of their votes and we're able to actually have the majority of people's feelings and beliefs represented by elected officials in those communities such that we've been able to not only preserve access to safe abortion, but advance uh, in some places like Minnesota. But it's been whiplash to have a group of staff and providers, both from Texas, Indiana, at the same time as we're working in New Mexico and Minnesota and Maryland and Virginia, right? I guess the other thing I'd touch on is just the profound grief that not only I have, but my team has. It's hard to just bounce back from, you know, letting people go and losing work that we've dedicated our lives to in Texas and just saying, oh, now we're going to go to New Mexico or now we're going to look at Southern Virginia or let's go to Illinois. You know, I mean, it's just it's just absurd what providers have been put through and what our patients have been put through. It's hard for me to get on the bandwagon of this sort of like heroic narrative that like, oh, it's awesome. We raised $10,000 to help somebody travel 2000 miles for an abortion. Like that's just a tragedy. You know, it's not, I mean, for that individual person and that one abortion that they were able to get, I'm all for it. Right. I've, I've been part of trying to help make that happen at the same point. That can't be okay. That can't be what our future is like, where a few people figure out how to thread that needle and a few people make it through that sort of more and more and more narrow little tunnel we've created and the vast majority of people that we need to be able to to help and serve are being left behind. Yeah. So those are all the things, many things. Yeah. You've often said that you've been providing care in two Americas. Mm -hmm. And can you describe what that means? Sure. So I think now after Rose Fallen, I think people see it more clearly, uh, but we saw it at least a decade ago at Whole Woman's Health. I always say to people, the abortion is exactly the same, right? The <laughs> procedure is the same. The consenting is the same. The hearts and minds of the people that we serve, they're holding similar narratives and similar feelings and beliefs. Um, but the way people get an abortion in Minnesota or Maryland or Virginia and the way people get an abortion in Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana, night and day, different. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the complexity of the medical services. It has everything to do with political interference and anti-abortion extremism. And so what people have to go through to access a safe abortion in Texas, um, and now they can't get one 
But what they had to go through, you know, took days and took miles and took all of these hurdles and hoops. Whereas, you know, in some places you can make an appointment and on the same day you have a pregnancy test and you can be unpregnant the next day. That's what it's been like to operate clinics in what has felt like two different Americas, as we've seen abortion now banned completely in 13 states and restricted to six weeks or 12 weeks in a handful of other states. I think it's emerging even more starkly for people to see that your rights depend upon your zip code. To talk to providers, they have seen the writing on the wall for a long time because providers have watched and understood that these are state laws that are chipping things away and that these are the laws that go to the Supreme Court that make the decision for the nation. The nation really, I think, at least started talking about it when the Supreme Court decided to take the Dobbs case. And even that was a debate, right? The the stupid pundits and the people were like, they couldn't possibly do that. Are you kidding? It's 50 years of precedent. And I think to be a provider, knowing that when that decision was made to take that case, that this was the beginning of the end, right? I guess I want to go next to that moment of when you heard the Supreme Court was going to take the Dobbs case, where were you and what, what was your emotional reaction to that? And where did you start your plans in motion from then? I'll say for me, I think the time that made me get my heart in my throat was when Kennedy resigned, mm-hmm. uh, where I was like, oh, crap, because our whole woman's health case that made it to the Supreme Court in you know 2016, he was the person that it was my job to influence, right? Uh, it was it was our job at Whole Woman's Health to really shift from this, you know, legal language to talk about the impact that these kinds of restrictions have on the people we serve and to move his heart and his mind. And we did that, right? And I knew when he resigned and the timing of it and all the things around it, I was like, uh-oh. And then it just felt like some backroom deal. And then from there, it just kept going, you know, then there was Gorsuch and then there was the June medical decision, which we were all like, oh, what's happening? You know, which was basically like Whole Woman's Health 2, you know, it was all exactly the same stuff. But when they decided to take Dobbs and then how they decided to take Dobbs, that they were willing to insert the very core of Roe v. Wade into the case when it actually hadn't been there before, like they used it as an opportunity to have a referendum on Roe v. Wade. Uh, of course, I was shocked and worried. But my husband and I have this saying from years and years and years of work in Texas is that you can be angry, but you can't be surprised. Right. Right. So I was angry, but I was like, oh, you know, we've been dealing with what's happened now nationally at the state level in Texas for decades. You know, so all these kinds of things that are starting to happen here, it's like, oh, yeah, we've done this. We've been through this. Right. There's this map on my wall right back here. And you can't really see all the different colors on it, but you sort of can. There's some states that have outlines and some states that have X's and all these different things. I've been staring at that map for well over two years, maybe longer. Uh, I feel like we should, I should start like a geography abortion class, right? Because I can tell you like what interstates go where, what rivers go where, what airports land where. And I think all of this has to do with how I as a provider started to prepare for the fall of Roe. And started to think about who's going to be denied care, where are they going to go, how are they going to get there? Yeah. And so I just remember dread when I heard that they were going to pick up the decision. And then I was actually in D.C. I was in the courtroom during the Dobbs case. As soon as I heard the line of questioning and the kinds of things that the new justices were saying, 
I was like, oh, then just became this whole what if, what if, what if that we had to do internally, preparing for the closing of some clinics, preparing for where people are going to go and how we're going to help get them there. And then, you know, what will happen uh, in the places where people are going to and who's going to be able to travel, who isn't. I mean, I could go on and on. Right. And these are kind of the, you know, logistical sort of what if scenarios that we prepared for. I mean, I have like notebook on notebook on notebook and reams of paper. And how do you plan not only for caring for patients, but plan to give stability and comfort to a workforce that is also preparing for this and also trying to figure out how to do their work and how to answer their phones and how to care for their patients with this uncertainty. You know, what's so amazing, if this was the banking industry and it was like, oh my God, banks may close. They may not close. We may close down a bank. We may not close a bank. We might be able to not give you money. I don't know if you're going to get your money. I don't know if all these bank employees are going to be able to have their jobs. People would be out of their fucking minds, mm-hmm. right? And this is what you're, the, the tumult of what is happening in the most important thing that's going to happen to a woman or a person who's pregnant in their life, you know, deciding whether or not this abortion is going to be able to happen for you so you can continue with your life. And it's met with such outrage with absolutely no teeth to follow through to protect it. I feel like it's met with punditry more than outrage, yes. truthfully. Yeah. You know? yes. yeah, I think that that's one of the things that's been so maddening for me this year is that like, if this is a public health emergency and people don't talk about it in that framework. Yes. They right. talk about it with a legal mind, like it's all the legal people talking about it or elected officials talking about it. And we have lost the very thing that we worked so hard to build during the whole women's health case is like the narrative of impact and the conversation, not only about the patients we serve, but about the abortion provider workforce, like the humanity of the abortion provider in the U.S. is just missing. You know, there's a couple instances like we've we've seen what's happened to Dr. Bernard, who is on our team in, in Indiana. We've seen a couple of instances where we're really able to tell the stories of like, what does this mean? What does this hostility and this, you know, terrorism mean for the actual people trying to do the work? But That impact piece, I think, and the hearts and minds of the people who need abortions and the people who are trying to help them, I think, has really been really overshadowed by sort of legal pundits, you know. On the federal level, in the past year and even before, there have been promises made by the Biden administration. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us are feeling frustrated that just not a lot has been done on this front. As someone who's been in meetings with Vice President Harris about working to protect abortion, what's your take on how the federal powers that be have handled this crisis? Yeah, that's been frustrating. Um, I think that, you know, it's been nice to have an administration that, you know, is responsive publicly, uh, you know, that they don't sort of pretend abortion doesn't exist. But I don't think they've done what they could do. And I have been very vocal about that in the opportunities I've had to speak with them, just giving suggestions about what we providers could use, the kind of infrastructure support we could use, the kind of financial help we need in order to relocate to other communities. I do feel like there's been acknowledgement of who we are, that we exist, and that it's hard. And that's been authentic, but there hasn't been any productive solution making or actions taken for how to get us out of this predicament. It's not being approached as a human rights disaster, a public health disaster, because each individual person, as they keep their story silent as like, 
you know, our culture has like tried to train people to is having the loss of their human rights on an individual basis instead of on a humanity basis. And it's not talked about as we're rolling our society back. It's talked about as like one woman's individual rights, even as even instead of as a human right or people's rights or families or communities. And I think that to me is just like maddening. I think that's a part and parcel with the shame and stigma of abortion care in general, right? The idea Mm -hmm. that like, we don't talk about our abortion stories. And if the abortion story is I'm too poor, I'm too rural, I'm too whatever to get to where I can get the care, then that shame is yours, right? There's a implication that that shame is yours for living somewhere rural, for not being wealthy, for not being white, right? Right. That's on you. And so therefore there is no impetus to talk about it. It's almost like I wouldn't want to, this is a private shame. And I guess I'm just gonna have this pregnancy that I did not want. You know, Moji, you're exactly right. This is like, it's like the Reagan influence of individualism, (laughs) right? And it's it's like the Christian right sort of, decided to just to describe abortion in that way and disconnect people. I mean, our power is in our connection, no question, right? And disconnected people from the through line that is the common experience of ending a pregnancy in this country. I mean, it's something that millions, millions of people share. And I say people because every single person who had an abortion got pregnant by somebody else, right? I mean, I always say every abortion has a penis, but I sort of mean it. It's true, right? Yeah, no one ever got pregnant (laughs) from a vibrator. No. And so like, if you think about the people who have benefited from access to safe abortion, it's far beyond this individual woman's rights kind of framework that has is like, outdated and irrelevant on some levels. And it's greatly affecting vast populations, right? And so I think that piece is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I've been trying to call, you know, our fancy representatives when I get access to them. And also we independent providers in the American South and the Midwest where the clinics have been closed are self-funding our relocation to other communities right? The last three Supreme Court plaintiffs of the biggest Supreme Court cases in Repro, Whole Women's Health, June Medical, and Jackson Women's Health, have all self-funded ourselves to relocate our clinics to other communities. That is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. I feel like the federal response in general has been disheartening. It's a good fundraising call, but it doesn't, we don't see the action behind that in a way that is substantive in places that access is being decimated. But it's also too, like, Throughout the course of our conversation, Amy has laid out these touch points that are valued when other, even medical people, all of that, staff, relocation, all of this stuff where there is funding to help businesses who are doing this work, Mm -hmm. and yet we still can't talk about it. People should be funding Amy, and all of these folks. So since I know you, and in, in interest of disclosure, I'm on the board of Whole Women's Health Alliance, and what we are constantly talking about and what you come up with all the time are creative ways to provide care. Like, what are some of the ways that you're like thinking out loud, but also maybe want to push the envelope on tangible issues to open clinics, to remain open, to challenge the fact that they get to do this. How are you thinking about things? Give us some examples of what you're just spitballing. Well, I think couldn't FEMA step in? Couldn't PPP money step in? Couldn't 
like highway department comes in and says, we're going to put a highway through your neighborhood or through your business's parking lot, you get like this imminent domain thing where the government like pays you to take your parking lot away or your house away or whatever. Like, how come these things don't apply to all the clinics in the South that were forced to close? I mean, where am I supposed to get the resources to help people with severance, relocation support, transition to new workplace support. I mean, the other piece is that the the borderlands of abortion have changed. And now we're seeing like banned abortion and safe protected abortion, like follow New Mexico, Colorado, you know, goes over to Kansas, up to Minnesota, over to Illinois, over to Virginia, right? And so not only did we lose our clinics and our patients lose the place in their local community where they could be served by their community, the anti-abortion people also lost their sidewalks, right? And so they're spilling over the borders as well. And what we have are clinics and, and providers who were already in some of these states, like folks who've been providing in Kansas and Colorado and New Mexico for a long time. Then we have other clinic folk coming into those communities in order to meet the needs of the patients that are displaced, right? So one thing is how can we all work together to deal with what is now the post-row reality of the care landscape, which we can't keep pretending is like it was before Roe fell, right? It's different now. Different folks are migrating for abortions. Different people are coming into the communities. I have to fly my Texas-based staff to New Mexico for them to see their own community. And they're seeing Texans in New Mexico from their same town that they came from, right? They're on the same flights. My clinic staff that I'm flying from Texas are on the same flights as the patients they're going to serve. They all land in Albuquerque. They're in the clinic together and they have the abortions. We provide them. The people receive them. Then they all take the same plane back. This is a new care reality. So one, how can we those of us like Whole Woman's Health, like Dr. Braid from San Antonio, like Diane Durzis from Jackson Women's Health, like Michael Rothrock and his team from June Medical, who are all going to these new places. How can our experience fighting these crazy people in these crazy states be of use in this new frontier? Not only the clinic services we provide, but our experience with litigation, our experience going to the Supreme Court, our experience with sanctuary city nut jobs. How can we collaborate with the providers and repro orgs that were already in those places? And both of our experiences can be mutually respected. Like because my clinics were closed in Texas and I'm going to open over here, I'm going to go over here. I'm trying to still serve that same community. Mm -hmm. We were looking at this borderland community at one point in eastern New Mexico. And people in our movement were like, well, what are you going to do if they pass sanctuary city ban? Right. They're asking me and Andrea that question. We sued the state of Texas 12 times. (laughs) We were like, uh, fight it. A sanctuary city ban isn't constitutional. No. First of all, they're co-opting a framework of sanctuary city that's remarkably offensive to start with, right? Yes. And so the opportunity to reframe that and to fight it, like that is just a piece of the work that we would do. You know, we would go to that community because it's it's better for our patients maybe, right? That's what moves us and that's what drives our work, right? And so providers from Texas go all the way up to Southern Illinois And the patients from Texas go all the way up to Southern Illinois. And those people are experiencing crossing through multiple states, being profiled as people who aren't from there with license plates that make them stick out. What are we doing to wrap around 
those patients who are displaced and the people who are trying to help them that have also been displaced. Amy, you laid out the year so beautifully. And I want to talk about two things before we wrap up. The one thing I want to talk about is you just said community and traveling community and moving community a lot, right? And in hearing you talk about your staff in Texas flying to New Mexico to treat the community. I want to just have folks understand how important fighting these laws are when you have a clinic in your community. Being someone who's had abortions, my catalyst for fighting for other people in my community was because of the abortion I had in my community. And so clinics as a rallying place and a gathering place and a community organizing space is also crucial. Can you talk a little bit about like this very important thing we don't talk about, about when a clinic leaves, how it's hard to build community to fight the laws? Yeah, it's super hard. It's super hard to build community. It's also like you lose the place where the thing happens, right? So like the patient comes, the phone call happens, the follow-up happens, the connection happens so that there's like a reduction in the isolation somebody might be feeling. There's a connectivity to other patients. There's a connectivity to other staff. You know, the stigma around abortion is reduced and also the positive experience, the sort of affirmation that happens from the abortion experience is enhanced, right? And so when we don't have a clinic anymore, we lose that sense of place, but we also lose that ability to find out what happens, right? And so I keep talking to reporters this year about, they love to tell the story about the clinic that opened in the new place or the patient that traveled to the new place. I keep telling them, there's a story you're not telling because it's a lot harder to tell about the person who was denied the abortion they need and what's going to happen in their life and with their family and in their community, because it's harder to find them now, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of patients we talk to. I'm thinking of one specifically from Houston. You know, we helped her raise all the money she needed to travel from Houston all the way to Albuquerque, which is 13 hours one way round trip. And she had to cancel her appointment three different times because one time the car broke down, another time the baby was sick. And then finally she was like, forget it. It's easier for me to have a baby. That's heartbreaking. There are so many people whose lives are impacted like that, that are just, I feel like they're invisible. You know, we do know that abortion is popular, right? As It's like right. we've been in this movement for a while as an organization, and we've been yelling like our chickens with our heads cut off and not being heard. Now people at least are like, oh, shit, this is real. Wow. Abortion access is a problem. We're finding politically it's more popular than any politicians and some states, uh, especially mm -hmm. the ones you still operate in are taking initiatives to protect abortion and ballot measures. Where do you see hope going forward? And what kind of actions would you recommend our listeners take so that we can protect, expand, and once and for all, solidify our right to care for our body and um, have bodily autonomy for all people? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me this question because I was thinking about this earlier. The notion that abortion is more popular than ever, right? Like abortion is incredibly popular with everyone. In the U.S., Republicans, Democrats, everyone, and just trying to leverage that with our elected officials to be like, hey, you know, you could maybe say something that isn't just reproductive autonomy or reproductive freedom. You know, people don't call my clinic to say I want to make an appointment for reproductive autonomy, you know. <laughs> 
And and so I think you're right, right? And so it's more popular than it ever has been in my entire career. Mm-hmm. And so what are we going to do with abortion being less accessible than it's ever been in my whole career and more popular at the same time? I think it's important for us to look at other things in history where those two things have been true. And what what are we going to do with that information and about that? I think every time abortion is on the ballot, it's winning. Yep. Here again, back to what we talked about earlier. I've known it on an individual level, how for so many people, abortion delivers them into their future. And it is about relief and hope. And it's amazing to see that recognized maybe more on a collective level. I think what we can do is talk about the value that access to abortion and that abortion has in our lives, the affirmative value of abortion, similar to how we shifted marriage equality from a legal framework to a framework of love to talk about because of my abortion, I was able to X, right? Because, you know, my girlfriend had an abortion in college. I am now able to do X white guys, right? Like everybody needs to talk about the positive role that abortion has in their lives. And even for those of us who've never had an abortion to say, because I knew I always could have an abortion if I needed to, I was able to dream a future for myself equal to my husband or my boyfriend or my brother, right? Mm -hmm. We have to shift the way we talk about abortion instead of having it be a tragedy. You know, I I call it an aspirational value that abortion has, which is a little bit of an abortion pun because aspiration abortion. (laughs) Girls got puns. That is a huge call to action for people is is for people not to keep that silence and for people to maybe feel more emboldened to share their experience with abortion because they can see it's popular. I think our opposition has been so loud and so mean that it's been scary for people to think that actually their abortion is completely normal and that they stand in the light and that their experience is is valued and common and and shared right and that power to stigmatize abortion has kept so many people silent for so long so i'm encouraged by that i think we need to center um providers I think that those of us who've been trying to keep clinics open or trying to keep people served in places where abortion has been banned are crumbling. We've had a really, really difficult year. And at the same point, we're trying to let our expertise and our passion be available to the people who are now moving into Haven States. And so how can we get supported to do that, right? To go to places like Southern Virginia or Southern Illinois or, um, you know, Kansas or New Mexico or some of the places where people are migrating to and be able to provide high quality abortion care, full spectrum abortion care that really pays attention to the cultural and spiritual aspects of abortion for some people, um, as well as, of course, emptying the uterus safely. Yeah. There'd be nothing more meaningful to us than than allowing our experience to be of use in this new landscape. Amy, this has been an incredible conversation because I think that, you know, it goes back to just how the conversation around abortion has publicly been centered. There's no long form conversations. There's no centering of the humanity of what it really means. And I love that you just were able to help us talk about what the movement is feeling, what you're feeling, where we need to be going, and also giving us some hope about what we can do to move the conversation forward and to try to do a reset so we can reclaim what we need to reclaim. You're always doing great work. It's a pleasure to know you and to help in any small way that I can um, make sure that you are honored, centered, and loved and uplifted. Thank you both so much. Thank Thank you. you.
Thank you, Amy. You can follow Amy and Whole Women's Health Alliance on social and donate to their incredible work expanding clinics and challenging these awful laws at wholewomenshealthalliance.org. Links in our show notes. And you know, Moji, hearing Amy and hearing how the clinics have just shuttered, that leads to one of the most nefarious things that have happened as a result of the fall of Roe. And I'm talking about the rise of fake clinics because in the states where abortion has been decimated, they have expanded funding to fake clinics. And in turn, those fake clinics are expanding their reach and creating even more chaos in these banned states. Some quick stats, there's four fake clinics to every one real clinic. Over the past couple of years, there's been $89 million across the U.S. in funding, tax dollar funding, to fake clinics. And Google search results in these banned states, one in 10 Google results for the term abortion clinic near me or abortion pill lead to websites of fake clinics. So they are dominating hard with money and access. And it's really, really scary. And it's only getting worse. You know, Liz, both you and I at points in our pregnancies visited fake clinics Mm -hmm. looking for abortion care. And in both those instances, got misinformation and shaming. And that was in the 90s for me or the early 2000s. They have so much more money now. Yeah, they do. And and the anti-abortion movement claims that these fake clinics are filling the void that the shuttered clinics have left but they don't provide care. We can't say enough. They prey on people desperate like us, searching for care. And with this infusion of cash, they have profoundly started dominating the landscape in a way that is really, really scary. And to go back to the Punisher and careerist narrative, you know, the Punishers love them because it just forces pregnancy outcomes all the time. It just forces birth, forces birth, forces birth. And the careerists, again, because they either don't do research or live in a bubble, or they can hold up supporting these fake clinics as some kind of noble endeavor, have pushed for this funding. And if they would only listen to the fact that these people don't provide care, they maybe would have their mind changed. But because you don't have to listen to any other side, they only listen to the Knights of Columbus who provide the ultrasound machines and the Susan B. Anthony list and all of these people who are lobbyists for the unborn. When we say they don't provide care, we're saying they don't provide any health care. They don't provide, a lot of times they don't provide cancer screenings. They don't provide pap smears. They don't provide any sort of birth control. They just provide misinformation. And unfortunately, people often don't know the laws around abortion in their state until they're pregnant and they're trying to change that state. And with that Google search of one in 10 going right to a fake clinic, it's really hard to find out the facts and find real care. And they're growing so fast in some of these states. I mean, in Texas, they increased their funding by so much. And also what's crazy about this increasing the funding for these fake clinics is these laws that increase the funding specifically exclude places that would give real help to people who are in crisis. Yeah. And a lot of these take money from TANF, something that could provide help to someone who is in crisis, who needs support in maybe a birth. And they give that money to fake clinics. And just to be clear, if you're listening to this, they don't also provide any prenatal care. They might give you diapers. They provide no care. So if you're seeking abortion, they don't give you the tools to access abortion. If you're a person who is seeking to maybe carry your pregnancy to term, they don't provide care for you to do that. And if you're a person seeking help because you want to carry to term and want to raise your child, they don't provide services for that. 
And if you're wondering how the fuck is this legal? Well, the Supreme Court has said, oh, they don't provide care. So they can literally dress up in doctor's costumes and use an ultrasound machine and say whatever bullshit they want about pregnancy and abortion because they're not actual medical providers. They're protected under the First Amendment. And you feel like you're, you'd be safe in a place like California or Minnesota or New York, but California has an 11 to 2 ratio of fake clinics to real in rural California. And uh, the fake clinics Liz and I went to are in Minnesota and New York. Yeah. Now, the good news is that states like Colorado and Minnesota have passed bills to actually have them be more transparent about what the services they provide. And in Minnesota, they are defunding any clinic that is calling itself a pregnancy resource center that does not provide the entire spectrum of care somebody might need during their pregnancy. So that is some good news that people are actually onto them and the defunding has stopped. But in the meantime, the anti-abortion community and fundraising and anti-abortion states are flooding these places with money. And it's a juggernaut that we really need to stop. But to continue with the better news, like what you said about the states that are fighting it, we have found in the good news post-op is that people who were pretty sure Roe was safe until about 11, 12 months ago, are really starting to mobilize to protect and restore abortion access. And there's some really fun stuff we're seeing in many states. There are ballot initiatives where activists are mobilizing and putting abortion on the ballot and basically trying to fight the gerrymandering through direct democracy. And it's working. Yes, it is. Even in deep red states, I'm repeating myself, abortion is a winning issue. It's more popular than any politician ever. Politicians are seeing that and running on that. It helped stop the bleed during the midterms of 2022. And progressive candidates, even in the coming elections, are really trying to run on and have run successfully on protecting abortion rights. But don't worry. The good news ends there for a hot minute, because with the success of the ballot initiatives, the anti-abortion movement quickly moved into gear to to try to do some dirty tricks. One, starting their own trash ass ballot initiatives, like in Colorado and Ohio, to like codify anti-abortion, which I don't really think is a thing. Makes no, makes no sense. Um, and they are also trying to move the threshold of a ballot initiative instead of just the popular majority to say you have to get 60% of the vote in order to pass a ballot initiative. Florida already has that. They're trying to put that in Ohio. They have it in Mississippi. And they're trying to tie anti-trans bills and all these woke bullshit bills to abortion bills so they can get these anti-abortion bills passed because they can't pass anti-abortion bills on their own. Because even in some states like Nebraska, they have said this shit ain't good. So we have to watch out for them all the time. One of my favorite dirty tricks is the um, the, the administrator in Missouri who said, oh, this $51,000 bill is actually $51 million. Yeah, you just know, just run with just new run facts. with new facts. <laughs> and that's a perfect segue into our next guest. Yep. We wanted to talk about the fake clinic rise and how activists in Georgia and the South are building coalitions to fight back. And we have an incredible guest. That's right. She's the executive director of Amplify Georgia Collaborative. Please welcome Allison Kaufman. Allison, thank you for joining us. Hey, Allison. 
Hey, y'all. Allison, we are so excited to talk to you on this episode for many reasons, but one is it's important to remind people that Roe did not make reproductive justice a reality for Black and brown people, as well as for low-income rural people. So therefore, in that light, can you talk about the work of Amplify and explain to our listeners the reality of what reproductive justice and access to abortion looks like in Georgia? Yeah, thank you so much. So we are the Amplify Georgia Collaborative, and we are made up of nine reproductive justice organizations and allies working to protect and expand access to abortion in Georgia. And we do this through local and state campaigns that advance policy change, educate, shift culture, and build a wide base of support for abortion access. And I just really appreciate you starting with the like note that Roe was not enough. It was not no. sufficient. It did we not say Roe is the floor. Yeah, Roe Ro is, is the floor. <laughs> it's just like the reality was that our rights had been chipped away at in Georgia for years, right? So like since 2005, over 10 abortion bans and restrictions had passed in Georgia. This was nothing new. What the overturning of Roe did was wake everyone else up to the reality that so many of us, especially folks in Georgia, especially people of color, were already living. And it activated people, much like when, you know, Trump was elected and people got reactivated around racism and xenophobia. It's like the overturning of Roe made people realize the state of abortion access in the U.S. um, and what it has been for so many years and what it was even pre-Roe and continue to be post-Roe for so many people. And so the context in Georgia is that we had a 24-hour waiting period. We had mandatory bias counseling. We have insurance bans. We don't have Medicaid expansion. We have limitations on who can provide abortions. And then the culmination was after the overturning of Roe, our six-week abortion ban, HB 41, was allowed to go into effect. And that effectively bans all abortions following around six weeks when like fetal cardiac activity is detected. And some people hear six weeks and they think, oh, well, you have six weeks to make a decision. No, not true. Mm -hmm. Um, You have six weeks following your last menstrual cycle, which for many of us is one to two weeks. And you are hard pressed to get an appointment in that time if you know you're pregnant. So it's just created incredible barriers to folks accessing abortion care in Georgia. And unfortunately, the majority of states around Georgia have even more restrictive bans. So it's really created this like abortion access desert in the South and forced those who are determined to get an abortion to travel extreme distances and incur a lot of costs. Before we expand on everything you just said, we're going to drill into. You kind of just laid out the whole convo, which I sort of love. And even having said that about Roe, we're asking everybody on this episode, do you remember where you were when you heard the Dobbs ruling? And how did you feel when you heard it? Yeah, I was actually getting coffee with a um, colleague who works at the Feminist Women's Health Center. And we were just catching up, like taking a moment. I think I was pushing my one-year-old and this is the first time that she got to meet him. Um, and as I was walking over to the coffee shop, I checked my phone and saw the news and we both just looked at each other and kind of had a moment where we hugged and we connected and we didn't look at our phones anymore. And we just like kind of felt into the moment, did some personal like connection and then came back to it and kind of just like 
let it wash over us. And just at the end of that, just kind of recognized how special that was that we did not receive the news staring at our screens, at our desks, and our homes alone. So I honestly feel really, really lucky. So that's not how I found out about the leak. You know, it was like up late at night on my couch and we're all like scrambling, you know, on Slack and and Signal. And so um, it was honestly like, I feel like the best way I could have experienced that moment, even though it was incredibly tragic. Yeah, it was a dark day for all of us. It was. And <laughs> then, of sure. course, we got home and like we're on a bazillion calls and press conferences and all of that. And in Georgia, did the, the ban, the six week ban go into effect immediately or was there like a wind down to it? No. So it was actually tied up at the Georgia Supreme Court. And so they decided to wait on their decision about constitutionality and, you know, whether it violated Georgia laws until after the, the decision on Roe. And so about a month after the Supreme Court issued their decision to allow it to go into effect, typically you have a week or some set of days to kind of allow clinics to adjust to the new laws. They issued it immediately. So the decision was made and services were suspended immediately. So they that meant like people who had appointments that afternoon were turned away. It was especially cruel that the courts decided to move in that way. It's just a lot to think about, right? And and yeah. you touched on briefly, um, not only does Georgia have a six-week ban, but you know, to just sort of paint the regional picture from Texas to Florida, abortion has either been decimated or states have six week bans. I think there is no abortion until you get to Georgia in six weeks. And Florida is now going to be implementing in the fall their own six week ban if the Supreme Court of Florida says they'll uphold it. Right. So lay it out for folks, an overview of what it is for folks who are seeking abortion care in Georgia. What is that experience like for them? And then more broadly for folks in the South in general. Yeah. So, I mean, I think first is many people still don't fully understand what our laws are. So people (laughs) find out they're pregnant at some point in their pregnancy, usually in the first trimester, and then they're trying to access abortion care if it's unwanted and they learn of our laws and they don't know what the six week means. Some people think it's a hard six weeks. So as long as I get there before six weeks and don't realize it actually is dependent on that ultrasound. So we have a good friend and advocate who's also an ultrasound technician who shares how every single appointment people are holding their breaths. They are just holding their breaths until the ultrasound is complete. And they either hear that they are able to access their abortion or they are told that fetal cardiac activity was detected and they're not going to be able to access care now. And then their journey goes from there. They either get their procedure and move on with their lives, or they have to scramble to figure out where the nearest clinics are. Oftentimes people are depending on abortion funds to help cover those costs, especially when they have to travel out of state. So our local abortion fund is Access Reproductive Care Southeast. And so they are usually the next stop for many people um, to figure out what their options are, to try to find appointments out of state. Um, North Carolina is the main state that folks have been traveling to who are in Georgia or in the surrounding states. And unfortunately, they're going to be implementing their own 12-week ban um, shortly. And they have particularly arduous restrictions on um, medication abortion, um, which will, in effect, make it inaccessible to folks traveling out of state because they would have to be in the state for like a week, I think, to be able to complete. Yeah, they also have a 72-hour ban. Yeah, 72-hour waiting period. period, And then they have to come to the follow-up appointment, which I think also has like, 72 hours between it. 
It has to be in person, I yes, think. They, and so, they yeah. do have an in-person. So you can't just consult over the phone. That to me was like, hit me hard. I used to live in North Carolina um, and work with the abortion fund there. And just knowing how many people were depending on that state for access and are going to have to now travel to other states who are already slammed, right? I think we often right. don't talk about just like, how overburdened clinics are in access states. And the more and more states like South Carolina, North Carolina, and Florida that force clinics to shut their doors, the fewer and fewer clinics there are to try to meet the, you know, the need that continues to be there. And that also means people are being booked out further and further and the costs are going up because of that. So it just becomes a vicious cycle. And I think something that's like interesting is that the number of abortions being provided in Georgia has fallen by 50%. And um, I think we would maybe expect to see like an even more dramatic fall because, you know, 50%, most abortions happen after six weeks. So like, how do those two things match? But it is because of that, like broader context, we can assume of those other states having complete bans and people still traveling to Georgia trying to get here before that six weeks and hoping they can get an abortion without having to travel further outside of the South. Is there a 24 hour waiting period on top of the van in Georgia? So it's, we do it's virtual. Like we can, that can be over the phone, but it does mean that often people don't realize that and will travel and then have to wait 24 hours to then, you know, be able to go to their first appointment. Well, you know, I, I feel this so much. I live part of the time in Brooklyn and part of the time in Minnesota, and I'm on the board of an independent clinic in Minnesota. And 30% of the procedures since SB8 in Minnesota are people who are from Texas. And it's because, you know, the states on the way to get your care, if there are any, they're either booked to the gills mm-hmm. or they just don't have it. And so people are traveling such incredible distances. That has been profound. I think that's one of the most profound things that happened since Dobbs is we talked theoretically for so long about the trigger bans and then watching 34 million. And I'm just going to say women because women is the statistic, but women that we know of, and then other people with uteruses immediately didn't live in a state where there was abortion access. 34 million. Yeah. That's insane. And also most of them didn't vote to lose their abortion access. Like you're saying, True. most people were unaware that this was happening around them because they're busy living their lives. Exactly. Many are parents. Like, yep. I don't have time <laughs> to follow yes. the latest policy. Same. Just like, Same. it's ridiculous. And like for the people that have been pregnant out there, like imagine all the travel and logistics and planning that you're trying to do as you're ma- managing being in your first trimester. It's just- Right, which is the most complicated part of pregnancy. Like for me personally, that's when you're tired. That's when you're peeing every five minutes. That's when you're the most uncomfortable. Yeah, you're <laughs> nauseous. It's just, no. And that's when you get the least concessions because no one wants to give you your seat when you look like you're not pregnant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The thing also is, if you are someone who is desperately seeking care, you're forced to tell people about your abortion. Mm-hmm. It's just taken out of your hands so profoundly. That's the part that I remind people how many times other people get to interfere in your journey. Yep. That shouldn't have to. Yep. And we now have uh, tax breaks for pregnant people. It's like, now I'm going to tell my like my tax accountant that I am in my first trimester and get, it's just like, there's just so many ways in which it's just 
folks are being forced to disclose intimate health information. Yeah. H&R block any privacy <laughs> to people who literally have no business, no reason or no, no. rights to know this about no. you. Most of us don't, don't disclose our first trimester pregnancies to anyone but the closest of family members. Exactly. But now apparently H&R block can mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. <laughs> be involved. Yeah. Allison, I wanted to ask you another question. You know, this is our Dobbs anniversary episode, and we just finished talking with abortion provider Amy Hicks from Miller, uh, and we talked about the importance of building community if we want to win. And your organization in particular started with the express goal of bringing together Georgia abortion providers, RJ orgs, and advocates to amplify the fight. So can you talk about why this model is crucial for expanding and protecting our reproductive rights? Yeah, I mean, I'm so deeply bought into collaborative models and cooperative spaces because I just feel like there's so much more work, right, to do than there are people to do it, than there are organizations to do it. Scarcity, this like false sense of scarcity is part of white supremacy, right? And so Mm -hmm. it's an important for us to create alternative models for approaching the work and to acknowledge that together, we really are going to be able to win in a way that like separately fighting for the crumbs of like donors and legislators, we wouldn't be able to move work forward. And also we talk about the importance of representation and intersectionality. One organization cannot meet all of those different um, perspectives, cannot bring all of the relevant people to the table in a way that bringing together different organizations and community groups and leaders can. So I really think it helps us to be more responsive to the actual needs, right, of Georgians that are so varied, so diverse, and different people approach this issues in so many different ways in a way that I think Amplify Workings, like, independently wouldn't be able to do. And it also helps to, like, get legislators to take us more seriously. 70% of Georgians support abortion access. But I don't feel like legislators feel that. And so it's really important that we come together and we show our numbers and we flex to make sure that they know that we have the power, right, to compromise their jobs, to make things uncomfortable for them, even in a state like Georgia, where we still have like the trifecta of Republican control at the state level. They know their days are numbered, like they can gerrymander, they can do all the little creative things to try to hold on to power a little bit longer. But they do know that ultimately, they're going to have to start being more responsive to our needs, especially when we are coming together under like shared goals and more of like a shared identity. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that because y'all are working your asses off with the Reproductive Freedom Act and you're canvassing and yeah. you're raising awareness around it. And of course, my brain is like, what's going on? They ha- There's a anti-abortion trifecta. They're pushing this super cool thing. It's obvious you're not pushing it because you know it to get it passed. Right. So explain to people, because I think people don't understand the importance of elevating something like the Each Woman Act or something that when you don't have the majority, why it's important to put out something into the world to get people to know about it. So it's not going to get passed this year, probably not next year. We are confident it's going to get passed eventually. Um, But I feel like when you live in states in the South, states like Georgia, where you're constantly fighting against, we can forget the power of fighting for. And it is so important for us to determine what we want in the future and to put that vision out there. Because if we don't, others will. And I think Quadrillion Jackson, Jackson like talks about how like a fire is a good igniter, but it's hope that sustains the work. 
And I think an act like the Reproductive Freedom Act is that hope, right? It tells people what we want, what we need, and what we can ultimately achieve in Georgia if we do the work, if we mobilize, if we get the numbers. And so I do think people can think we're confused or naive. We've definitely had elected officials like pull us aside and say like, you realize like this isn't going to pass, right? <laughs> like, and we're like, yeah, like we we get it. We don't have the numbers. Like it's the math is pretty simple. And like no large ambitious policy has ever passed in the first year, in the first two years, in the first three years. And so we're really working that long game um, and really focusing on community right now and building that support, having those conversations, because people are itching to get involved, to find a way to take action. And it really is on us to meet that need, right? And to create opportunities that aren't just show up and tell people why why this ban is bad, but also show people what we want and how we can achieve it and how other states have done so. I just want to say, Allison, you said it so eloquently, but I also am like, right, anti-stint decades chipping away at Roe, right? One stupid trigger ban at a time Mm -hmm. that was unconstitutional, that was illegal. And you know what? In 50 years, they made it. And we can do better than that because we actually have the majority. Exactly. I think that's right. And I also think too, painting an aspirational picture reminds people who aren't deep in this of the world that we want to live in and that somebody else is got the ball rolling on it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's important. And especially when it's a an intersectional, multiracial, you know, multi-gendered group of people who are pushing it forward. It's like, we're all in this together. It's like, you know, we all do better when we all do better. And so to have people that look like everybody in the state mm-hmm. being able to tell the story, it's, you know what, it's really what we needed right now from you to just hear that. Yes. Because I think so often it can feel we're marching then what? you know, we're mad then what, and like be mad and March, but it's it, to us, it's always like March and be mad and empower people to see the future they want to live in. Exactly. March towards something. If you're going to be marching, march towards something. I think that's great. Allison, you really painted a hopeful picture in a time that feels pretty stark. And so thank you for all your work. We wish we could talk more because we really wanted to also talk about the fake clinics program and all that stuff. But we will be talking about that when we come to Atlanta and do our live show. Wonderful. And spread the word on that. So um, I'm very excited. Thank you for joining us and and being amazing. Thank you all. It's been such a pleasure uh, to just get to talk to you. And we can't wait to welcome you to Atlanta. Thank you, Allison. We can't wait to get there. You can follow the work of Amplify at Amplify GA on Twitter and Instagram. And if you're in Georgia, sign Amplify's petition for the Reproductive Freedom Act at amplify-ga.org. Links are in our show notes. This might be a good time to tell you that your friends Liz and Moji are doing a live version of Feminist Buzzkills in Atlanta on July 20th. That's right. It's going to be an incredible night great comedy. I'm going to do some stand-up along with the incredible comedian and actor Baron Vaughn from Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Plus, we'll be talking with members of the Amplify Collaborative and bring you all the latest news that affects your reproductive well, everything. So mark your calendars. Moji and Liz, Feminist Buzzkills Live, 
July 20th at Terminal West in Midtown. Tickets and info are in the show notes. Come on down, Atlanta. We will be in Atlanta. We will be talking about abortion. And one of the positives of the past year is that more people are finally having this abortion conversation in public. Not just individuals, but media is speaking about abortion a little better rather than letting these anti-abortion talking points lead the coverage. I mean, that was such a mess. Like it was like showing that when you don't cover abortion all the time, you just use their language, you know? And it's been really nice to see that they have stopped using just women all the time and have tried to be better about gendered language. And they stopped calling these hatchet masters pro-lifers, at least. That's good. Mm-hmm. And they also, you know, they stopped talking about the using terms like heartbeat bill and started like recognizing that what heartbeat? This is a fetal cardiac activity ban. The power of storytelling. I don't know, Moji, if people would have come forward this way had the crisis of Dobbs not happened, right? Because it was sort of like everybody who had had abortions kind of freaked out and the popularity of abortion was revealed. The prevalence of abortion was revealed, right? I think that uh, stories I heard, people were like, I didn't know mine had one. It's like, well, now we're in crisis. Everybody wants to say, I understand this crisis. Right. And it wasn't just the activists telling their abortion stories. It was regular people coming forward publicly And telling their stories and breaking the cycle of shame with their stories. And like Amy was talking earlier, regular folks are always way ahead of the media Mm -hmm. and regular folks by telling those stories and coming forward, I think allowed the media to talk about abortion in the ways that activists have have been begging them to for decades. Right. And so that part feels, I feel sad that people have to tell their stories you know, because you should never have to tell your story about any medical thing that you have. But I do feel like as Amy was talking, you know, about how people need to stop individualizing abortion and looking at it as a common good. I think that that's happening. And I feel really positive about that. I mean, like, even just this week, Jill Biden, not Joe Biden, but but it's a step, (laughs) both Jill Biden and Kamala Harris you know, had big conversations about abortion. And Jill Biden talked to a bunch of the people who are are on that Texas lawsuit Mm -hmm. who are suing because they almost died because they couldn't access life-saving abortion in Texas. And so this all feels positive. More of these stories, it's all really good. And if you can tell your abortion story, do so. So if, if there is a super positive, it's that this is really the first time we have owned the narrative and put it in our own terms since Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. That's 50 years of us repeating stigma. And I think that that's really, we've argued this for a while. We've discussed this for a while. That's really how we change hearts and minds, right? That's how we get people mobilized behind, you know, the good of abortion, the necessity of abortion for healthy people. Yep. hundred percent. You know, we always close out our shows with an uplifting comedy guest. And we wanted to be intentional about who we had on this episode. And we wanted to have somebody funny, but somebody who also was going to help us like with some resilience, with some good tactics for just like keeping yourself healthy. And our next guest not only is fucking hilarious, they fight reproductive stigma all the time. They are fierce warriors and they care and write extensively about self-care. And she's about to hit the road on her messy AF tour. It's none other than Bono's best friend, dope queen Phoebe Robinson. 
Hi, Fibs. Hi. How's it going, ladies? It's good. You know, you're not going to believe this when I tell you, but it was 10 years ago that we did that benefit. It was the very first benefit mm-hmm. we ever did in a basement of Bowery Electric. Yes. And Sarah Silverman <laughs> and I were hosting it. And you and Amy Schumer and the cast of Orange is the New Black. And we were in this wild space. And I remember then being like, I don't know Phoebe very well, but I think she's so funny. I wonder if she would ever do this. And you were like, yes, immediately. And I (laughs) am so grateful. Well, I definitely felt like, yikes, there's a lot of heavy hitters on this. So I hope I don't suck. Like it was, you know, like getting an email from you is like, no joke. So I was just like, okay, bitch, don't fuck this up. But it was such a fun night. It was so cool. I cannot believe that was 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago when Texas was falling apart 10 years ago. And we were raising money for those abortion funds. And I don't know if you know this, but the venue promised that they had Wi-Fi and that they had connectivity and they did not. So we bought off the apartment upstairs the first floor and ran cord up to this person's apartment to hook in. And then the crazy Russian landlord was like, I'm cutting cord. What is cord? I'm cutting cord. And I was like, oh my God, you can't cut the cord. You can't get the cord. So we had to pay the Russian lady. It was a whole, I don't even know if we made any money. I think we paid off so many people (laughs) just to stream the benefit. That's bananas. It was bananas. Also, Texas has been falling apart forever, huh? Yeah, (laughs) turns out they're not doing great. Haven't been for a decade. They're trying. They're trying. They're trying. Well, I'm I'm glad to like see you guys again. And, you know, I know the world is like still a hot mess, more of a hot mess. I can't tell. I can't tell. Well, we asked you to be on this particular show specifically because we are focusing on the year since the overturning of Roe a year ago. And we wanted someone who was not only hilarious, but also someone who can give really good, solid advice on radical self-care as we are in a continued fight for our humanity. And because you wrote so brilliantly about it in your collection of essays, please don't sit in my bed in your outside clothes. We wanted your wisdom to fill out the show. So Can you remind folks why self-care is vital and give some of your self-care tips? Yeah, I mean, if you don't have self-care, man, you're not living. You're not. You're Mm. just surviving. And, you know, I'm sure certain folks who are in positions of power just want people to be surviving because if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not finding the joy, just like you're stuck in the muck. It's hard to fight for your rights, to appreciate life, to get involved with your communities and other people. So I'm I'm a big proponent of self-care as a reformed workaholic. I just, you know, I think COVID kind of made everyone sort of look at their priorities and how they're living their lives. I'm like, maybe the way I was doing everything was kind of like, not the best. And, you know, I wrote about in my book, there was one point where I was writing a book and I was so stressed out because it was COVID. And it was like, well, what does this mean for, you know, my production company and all these, you know, I have projects that were up in the air where it was just like, I don't know when the money's coming or if it's ever going to come. And I was just so stressed out about everything. And I was at my desk and it was like early in the morning because I was working on my book and I was writing. I was so stressed out that I got up and I threw up in the trash can in my kitchen and then went back to my desk and like started writing again. And I was like, that is unhinged behavior, bitch. Like, what are you doing? But I think it's hard when you're feeling those moments of stress to prioritize yourself because it feels like 
well, that's not productive or that's not doing the work. And it's like, well, yeah, we're not machines, so we don't have to work all the time. So for me, it was very important, like coming out of COVID, I was like, I need to have a hobby. I'm almost 40. And my life had just become wait a minute. You did not have a hobby? No, girl. <laughs> no. I was I was work everything it was working. I was working. Everything was like stand-up, writing books, acting, producing, and just turned everything without thinking about it. I was monetizing everything that I was doing. And I was just like, this is kind of ridiculous. I don't have anything that I just do for fun that is not tied to my career or to like self-betterment in that way. And so I started running and taking tennis lessons. And it's just been so freeing to just sort of do something with my body. I'm not trying to be an athlete. I'm not trying to, you know, finish first in a 5K. It's just like celebrating the fact that I have a body and I can move. So that's my number one self-care thing is I try to be physically active five times a week. It doesn't matter what it is. I could do Pilates. I can go for a walk. I could run. I can lift weights. But it's just something where I just have to dedicate 30 minutes to myself where I'm shutting my brain off and taking care of my body. Another thing that I really sort of prioritize is self-care is I'm very much a person where if I get stressed out, I just turn inward. So like, I like won't reach out to friends or anything. So I just always make it a point of like, once a week, I either call a friend or I meet up with a friend. We go to brunch, we see a movie, we go to a museum, we just do something together. Just as a reminder, just get outside of myself and outside of my body. And I think it can, you always go like, oh, I don't want to like burden anyone or they're always busy. And it's like, no, people want to see each other. So I just really try to do that. I try to sleep more than I was doing before. And I just try to be present. I'm very much an overthinker. And that can just make life not fun because you're just always thinking of a thousand different ways you could have done this conversation or did this thing at work. And it's like, can you just have fun for once? (laughs) Oh my goodness. As you're going through this list, I'm realizing all the ways I'm not participating in (laughs) self-care. Good God. I know. I just did a a function with Loretta Ross, who is one of the mothers of the reproductive justice movement. And she's a riot. She's 70. I think she even said like, look, bitches, you know, sometimes you just got to watch Twilight without looking at it through a feminist lens. Like, stop it. Like, just (laughs) have a moment of just pure joy. Because the people who hate us, the one thing they do hate is joy. Like they're anathema to joy. They don't want you to have joy. So having joy is the best revenge. Yes. Like if you're constantly fighting all the time, you're fighting for reproductive rights, you're fighting for pay parity, you're constantly dealing with all these battles, when are you enjoying everything? What are you fighting for if you're not experiencing any joy or happiness? So it's like, I do all this stuff and then I'm going to watch Vanderpump Rules. I started season one. I'm now in season four. Is it complete hot garbage? Yes, it is. But sometimes you need a little garbage to offset the seriousness that we're all facing every day. Exactly. So we're terrible at self-care over here. We try our best, but it's hard to fight oppression every day and find time because you you have to realize that there's going to be oppression tomorrow. So 
take a break. But one of the questions we're asking everybody is Dobbs happened a year ago. Roe v. Wade fell, crumbled. And do you remember where you were and how you reacted when you heard the news? Yeah, I was um, on set of my now canceled TV show, Everything's Trash. And we're all we're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? And the pilot, the first episode of the season, my character uh, takes plan B because she's has um she's hooking up with like a fuck buddy and like his condom breaks and they for months were really fighting us on why does she have to take plan b this makes her kind of slutty i don't know if we need this like all these justifications for why it happens and i'm like sometimes a condom breaks what have you like it's showing that a woman can like take you know control of her body and her choices and rectify a situation. I remember there was so much pushback on that. And I, it was like, I was like, this is the hill that I'm dying on. Like, I'm very much a like. Why do they hate sluts so much? Yeah, it was just like, A, I was like, A, I've used plan B in my life because of a broken condom. B, it doesn't make you slutty. C, if some of the slut, their stories also deserve to be told as well. So I think this sort of narrative that there's only a proper way to be a woman or like, you know, I think if my character was like, oh, my God, what is this going to mean for my life? I have this like moral dilemma. I was just like, no, I am a woman in Brooklyn. I have a podcast. I have my friends. This thing happened. I want to get my plan B and then like go hang out with my family. Like, I think they sort of felt like, why is she just so chill about it? And I was just like, I think we have to reframe the way that we look at women and how they make their choices and understand that, A, not every woman wants to be a mother. B, it's not always a torturous choice to be like, I don't want to be a mother. Sometimes you just very well know yourself. And this is personal experience. Like, I don't want to be a mom. And I just know myself. And so I'm not, you know, like devastated by it. I'm like, you know, I like hanging out with my niece and nephew. I'm sure there'll be moments where I'm like, you know, okay, my life could have gone this direction, but it didn't. But I, I think everyone has that. And so I remember when, you know, a year ago, I was just sort of like, I was so glad I fought to keep the plan B and the episode was very important to me. And I think in the end, you know, Freeform got it and they understood, but it's just like, we're in 2023 and that came out in 2022 where people were still sort of like, I don't know if women are allowed to use plan B. It's like, what the hell are we talking about? Right. And Phoebe, like it takes a lot to fight those battles because the truth is people want to see plan B narratives, abortion narratives, as long as there's a a sympathetic character taking it. Right. Oh, this person who is 11 and has had this horrible tragedy. It's like anybody who's pregnant and doesn't want to be or potentially could be like that's value. Like they don't want to be. So let's just have that be a thing. Yeah. Also, seriously, I'm like, why do people hate sluts so much? Like, I love seeing slutty characters yeah. on TV and movies. Like, I love that. I just feel like womenhood, like personhood, being alive is there's so many f- dimensions and we are all so different. And it's just nice to see a little bit more roundness. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, there's so many male sluts on TV that I'm like, no one even cares <sighs> about. Then I'm like, why is this a big deal? Why? And they're often marginally unfuckable. Yeah. Fully unfuckable. (laughs) Okay. So you have a book imprint called Tiny Reparations. So can you tell us what you're looking for in an author and what impact your imprint is having? 
Seriously, for a person who's a reformed workaholic, like this is, you're doing a lot. I it's no joke. <laughs> Whoa. Yes, it's a lot. But I, what I will say is that I take time to like if I ever do like a work trip out of the country, like I'll just stay a few days and just have like I'll go like explore. I'll have a friend fly out and meet me. So I'm really trying to balance the play with the fun. But yeah, tiny reparations books. Like I've always wanted to have an imprint. And I was talking to Plume, which is my publisher, before COVID happened. And then once it happened, I was like, oh, this isn't important anymore. And my agent was sort of like, well, you're you're reading every single day to cope with COVID. I think a lot of people are turning to books. And so I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's go for it. Because I, you know, remember when I was shopping around my first book, You Can't Touch My Hair, in 2015. And my publisher, Plume, was the only one who wanted to publish me because... Other imprints were like, mm, this isn't sellable. It's not, nobody wants to read books written, like an essay collection written by a Black woman. This isn't relatable, all these things. And I was just like, it's 2015 and we still think that Black people writing books is weird and nobody wants that. Also that at the very least, Black people don't read. Black people like to read about Black people if no one yeah. else does. And there's enough of us yeah. to maintain a book. Yeah. So I, <laughs> wow. I was just like, I never want, you know, anyone who I don't publish their work is not because of how they identify or who they are. It's just, I don't feel like I'm the right sort of shepherd for them, but we're publishing essay collections. We have one by Reggie Watts coming out in October, awesome. which is cool because when I first started doing stand up in New York, I used to like go to his shows and watch him. So to now be like publishing his book, I'm just like pinching myself. Poetry, fiction, nonfiction. So it's really exciting. We're trying to keep the book list to like five to 10 books a year because you really want to be able to devote energy to each author and not just feel like they're just one of many. But it's been fun. I have a whole, you know, have an editorial team, I have a marketing team, publicity. So it's really like, it seems like I'm doing a lot, but I also have a lot of people helping me. I love it. That's really how you get things done without driving yourself crazy. Yeah. You have enough people to help yeah. you. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Phoebs, my self-care is thought name. I'm telling you, <laughs> I talked to you about this when I ran into you at, at uh, Jenna's amazing book party. But so First of all, I would like to be in the cabinet of Thought Nation or at least an ambassador to somewhere because I feel like I should be it. For those of you that don't know, you got to get on Phoebe's Instagram because March Madness and the King of Peen is like my favorite. It's like literally gotten me through because I don't have time to search for hot dick on the internet and you just assemble it all for me so that I can go look. So you need to break down sort of the whole way that people can participate, vote. You know, I was the ghost of Paul Newman hard. Yeah. I was in hard. Yeah. I lost to a formidable winner. Yes. But talk to me about Thought Nation so that I can stop being an old lech lusting. No, I started Thought Nation because I just really love hot dudes and hot famous dudes and like writing about them. So I created this thing called Thirsty Thursday for anyone listening who doesn't know. I, I post every Thursday a little like. I wax poetic about a famous guy <laughs> that I think is amazing. And so I got to do one for um, this week. And it's just, I just was kind of doing it like as fun. And, and I didn't really think it was going to, people were going to catch on to it. But it's been like really nice. And so doing the March, was it March Madness of Peen was like so fun. I work with my social media team to like create the visuals and stuff. 
I kind of was like, I think Pedro's going to win because he just had so much momentum this year. Yeah. But it was like super fun. I was, I really wanted Paul, the ghost of Paul Newman to go farther. No offense to Henry Cavill, but I'm like, he's no Paul Newman. You know what I mean? Like, come no. on. No, <laughs> he <Yeah>. is not. <laughs> but I think it's just been like a fun way to just sort of like be silly, not take anything too intensely and just be like, let's just be, let's laugh and be ignorant this Thursday morning and then we can move about our days. And I think there's a lot of like, I don't know. I just want people to sort of like loosen up a little bit and maybe I'm just projecting because I definitely have my therapist and my life coach at different times be like, I don't feel like you're having a lot of fun. I feel like you're doing a lot and you're working really hard, but I don't think you're having fun. And so I think it's just good to just have these things like thought mesh where it's like, it's silly and it's funny and it's joyful and that's all it has to be. And that's okay. And you are making deposits in people's bank banks around the world <laughs> mm-hmm. and a grateful nation. Thanks you. So you are, give, you're, you're like Mackenzie Scott of literally just depositing <laughs> oh, yes. beautiful thoughts of peen. You're the Mackenzie Scott of peen. Thank you. I will you. take that. I will take that honor. <laughs> okay. We just have one final question. What's with you and Bono? Like, yeah, what seriously, I like went on your IG and I was like, where, why is he all over her? He's bowing. To, okay. He's bowing to the feeds. Is that happening? I see it. Like, I want you to what? Yeah, I've been a huge YouTube fan probably since I was like 13 or whatever. I was listening to like a classic rock station. And I think I heard Pride. And I was like, oh, this sounds, this is different. Okay, let me check this out. So I went to my library and I just like, oh God, I feel so old. But I checked out like all these CDs. They don't even sell CDs anymore. Oh my God. Can't even buy them. But I checked out all these CDs, YouTube CDs, and I just like started listening to them and I just became so obsessed. I love like their messaging. I love their writing. Bono, I just was always like, he's so cute. And so we met at Bonnaroo in 2017 and I was kind of nervous I was like oh I don't know if I should meet him it might be like a buzzkill might not be great but he was so wonderful and sure I think like around maybe like six months before that I started doing some stuff with Red um, which is his nonprofit that he runs with Bobby Shriver and so I met and I was like oh he's like so cool and so I just like continue the relationship with Red and you know, I'll see him at concerts or like hang out at like an after party. He's just so delightful. He he sends me flowers on my birthday, which is like so nice and just makes me feel like such a, you know, he's a rock star. Rock stars know how to make you feel mm-hmm. special. And he's also does a lot of good. And I feel like I try to do a lot of good. And so I think we're just like minded in that way. And so, yeah, he. Well, from time to time, like what I posted on Instagram, do something nice, like sing me happy birthday and present a cake to me. And I was truly floored. I had no idea what was going to happen. I was like, is this my wedding? I think this. (laughs) 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 What's happening? (laughs) That is so awesome. I have a little YouTube story for you. Uh, When I was still living in Minneapolis in the 80s and they were touring and their first United States tour. They played in Minneapolis. I went to the show. Then I started, there was this crappy airlines called People's Express. And they flew with me. I did not know on the plane from Minneapolis to New York because I was coming to New York to work. And I had this massive suitcase that I couldn't handle. (laughs) And I was at the carousel and the edge carried my suitcase out to the curb, (laughs) to the super shuttle. 
It was very exciting. I was like, I can't believe this is happening, Amy. And this was in like 1983. That's amazing. So if you feel old, bitch, I'm super old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Baby, you're a delight. Will you come back and talk to us at some other point? I would love or just to. come and hang around with us mm-hmm. and slay bad guys? Yes. You're fun. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> let's do it. Thanks for being you and being awesome. Thank you for having me. You guys are fighting a good fight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Follow Miss Phoebe on social at Dope Queen Phoebes and check out Phoebe's dates for her messy AF tour at PhoebeRobinson.com. And her book imprint is tinyreparations.com. Liz, it was such a great interview. So inspiring. And it was a great place to start talking about what can we do to fight all this stuff? Yeah, you know, we kind of laid out a lot of scorched earth. So what can we do? Well, the good news is this podcast has been bore out of all of the activism that we do at Abortion Access Front. And I'm really proud, Moji, to say that as we laid out this episode and like the problems that were arising and the things that were emerging, Abortion Access Front has a programmatic place to help you plug in to all of these things that are happening, right? Like Operation Save Abortion. We started Operation Save Abortion because we knew the fall of Roe was coming and we really wanted people to learn from experts in all the different aspects of abortion activism. And so you can go to operationsaveabortion.com. You can watch the series that we put out. You can do the workbook that goes with it. And then you can sort of get an understanding of what's out there And we'll help you plug in to where you need and want to be doing the work. It's pretty great. It's really fantastic. And you can also go to exposedfakeclinics.com if you want to do a deeper dive into all of the terrible harm that fake clinics are reeking through the country and find ways that you can fight back and mobilize with other people around that. It's really great. Also, too, as we are going into next year without Roe (laughs) and into an election cycle, I think it's important for folks to realize that the abortion funds, they got some infusion of cash when the fall of Roe happened, and that money got eaten up so quickly. And now with the elections coming, people are donating to candidates. And it's not on the radar as much. And so if you can donate to an abortion fund, I highly recommend you still do. Because the truth be told, even if abortion isn't your main issue, we share all of the same bad guys, whether it's anti-trans folks, the Islamophobes, the homophobes. If you're a phobe, they're working against all of our interests. So let's fight together to beat these folks off. And the need is only getting worse, right? There are some bans we talked about that are in litigation. They may come into effect. Like people continue to need abortion care in places that are decimating care. And so if you can donate, do it. That's right. We hope that you have a fuller picture of the landscape and maybe you have a little bit of hope that you didn't have before. Thanks so much for listening. We always appreciate having you. So like and subscribe our show. Get us some love with a five-star rating. Stay connected on social media at Abortion Front. And let's make a difference together and have some fun doing it. I want to thank our guests, Amy Hegstra-Miller, Allison Kaufman, and Phoebe Robinson for taking this look back with us. And a reminder, all of the info to follow, all of their work will be in our show notes. And if you're looking for abortion care and don't know where to turn, Go to INeedAnA.com for the best, most up-to-the-minute resources on medication abortion, clinics near you, and how to get financial assistance for your procedure. 
And another reminder, people, we are going to be doing a live pod in Atlanta. It's going to be at Terminal West, July 20th at 8 p.m. Liz here with me is going to be doing some stand-up along with comedian Baron Vaughn from Grace and Frankie. And other members of the Amplified Georgia Collaborative will be there to talk about abortion access in Georgia. The ticket link is on our website. Get your tickets now. Also, you want to hear even more stories about what the year after Roe hath wrought? Well, mark your calendars for June 28th at 5 p.m. as abortion funds and support organizations on the front lines are having a powerful conversation about directly helping folks seeking abortion care during this horrible year. You can find the link to watch it in our show notes. And you could get info on our activist calendar at operationsaveabortion.com. Next week's guests, we continue the conversation with Kat Riley, Policy Director at the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, or COLOR, and from the new film at your cervix, director and producer, Imagine. Join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. FBK is edited by Remy Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Thanks for listening. We hope we're giving you the knowledge and actions you need to fight with us. That's it for us, but we leave you with a steaming, flaming pile of whole ass celebrating the fall of Roe. Just watch this, watch this. It's the morning of Roe v. Wade being overturned. I'm in my office and I hear this shout, cry, whimper, squeal all at once. And I came running to my wife's office to see what was wrong. And she's weeping mascara everywhere. And she says, it's overturned. The cries and shout went from her office into the first service of Mark's Women Conference where this place exploded. Tears and crying and shouting and losing our voices. And then we got on social media to see what the rest of the world was going to be celebrating with us. And it was silent. Feminist Buzzkills, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. New episodes drop Friday. Listen, subscribe, give us five stars.